We have first Chuck Friedman, who brings to the table 30 years of experience as a senior official of the Bank of Canada, from 1988 to 2003, deputy governor concerned with designing monetary policy and uh, issues of financial institutions. Prior to joining the bank in, in 1974, he was professor at University of Minnesota, I believe, a member of the um, International um, Stability Forum and a consultant to the BIS Bank of International Settlement. Uh, since leaving the bank, he has advised a number, of a number of central banks in a number of countries, has worked uh, at the IMF, and I understand is about to uh, produce or edit a uh, IMF publication on um, inflation targeting, uh, on inflation targeting. Uh, he received his education in Toronto, Oxford, and the MIT, and we will look forward to his comments with interest. Thank you very much, Carrie. See if this works, good. Uh, given the 20-minute constraint on time and the fact that this is what I call the infinitely expansible, infinitely contractible lecture, going anywhere up to two hours, I'm gonna speak fast. Uh, starting point is that the complexity of the financial slash economic crisis that we've just gone through is such that it cannot be explained by a single factor. There are many, many elements, and what makes it fascinating is the complex interactions of the elements in the, in, that really account for the crisis. And most notably, the financial crisis and the economic downturn fed on each other, with the deterioration of the financial sector worsening the economic situation and the deterioration in the economy intensifying the financial sector. But we go. Uh, but I think, like many people, I begin with the subprime mortgage market in the United States. And there were a lot of weaknesses in that market and a lot of blame to go around. First of all, the model of originating to distributing, which means that, in effect, banks, for example, would originate the mortgage and then they could distribute it to other holders, resulted in the decline in lending standards and in the monitoring of mortgages. Secondly, financial institutions should have been much more aware than they were that housing prices can go up and down. Uh, those of us who lived through this a few times are always puzzled by how quickly it gets forgotten. Third, some of the practices, the originators and brokers worsen the outcomes, uh, unethical, illegal in some cases, unfortunate in others. They encouraged borrowers into variable rate mortgages where it was inappropriate for them in some cases. They had initial teaser rates to convince people they could afford housing, to own a house when it was not the moment the teaser rates came off, it would not be the case. And the compensation of agents arranging such mortgages was done by volume with no attention paid to risks. That issue of compensation and incentives comes up again and again in my story. The government. The government in the United States uh, thought that home ownership should be encouraged and subsidized. Everyone should own a home. Now, it is true everyone should have shelter, but there are many countries in which shelter means rental, and there's nothing that says that people with uncertain and very volatile incomes have to own their own home when it's totally inappropriate in the circumstances. And fifth, the legal situation of no recourse in most states in the United States meant people could just walk away from housing once it was underwater. So we've got a problem started with. Now, let me turn more quickly to derivatives. 
The risk with the derivatives, and this is generally true, is the inherent complexity of the instruments raises the concern that management will not understand or be able to control effectively the amount or type of risk being taken on the firm. I'm quoting myself 15 years ago, actually, there. And basically, a CEO of a company involved in derivatives on either side does not have to understand Black-Scholes or pricing or all the technical stuff, but what he or she does have to understand intuitively are the risks that they are undertaking, and that was forgotten. Either the companies didn't understand the risks or they underestimated the probability of the tail events. For many years, mortgage-backed securities operated very effectively. Then came the turn of collateralized debt obligations, which are the ones, the technical term is slice and dice, where you divide them up and put them in different forms. And these are tranches that could be tailored to the needs and desire of purchasers. The credit rating agencies played an important role in providing ratings to the various tranches of these instruments. But neither the rating agencies nor the purchasers had a very clear understanding of the probabilities with respect to the outcomes of the payment flows from these instruments. Purchasers rarely did due diligence themselves, relying excessively on the credit rating agencies. Again, that is a sort of issue that comes up again and again. Multi-billion dollar corporations, financial and non-financial, with risk management units, with lawyers and so on, seemed to completely ignore what was behind them and just it took other uh, credit rating agencies at, on their world. And the credit agency, rating agency had a lot of problems in this. There were brand new kinds of instruments, the, the, particularly the, uh, mortgage, the mortgages uh, that we're talking about. They had no idea of what the default probabilities would necessarily be over time. Sensitivity at small errors in estimation made the riskiness of tranches of CDOs and what are called CDO squares, where you cut and slice them again. Uh, and finally, the, there was an underestimate of the correlation of returns on asset-backed CEOs. One way of thinking about this is to say, if you have a AAA industrial, it's not going to turn to a, a single B overnight. It may over time, but it's not going to happen overnight. That can happen with these kinds of instruments. And some concerns have been expressed about the CRA's conflicts of interest, which I can talk to later on in question. Then we had credit default swaps. By the way, inherently, there's nothing wrong with these, any of these instruments. It's the way that they were, the risks were ignored that was the real problem. Uh, they also played an important role in the development of the financial crisis. In many cases, sell, sellers of CDS, this is like an insurance policy, and you had people selling them that underestimated the probability of the unlikely negative outcomes or tail events. And purchasers frequently underestimated or ignored the risk that the counterparty, whether it was AIG or a monoline insurer, would be unable to pay off the insurance if the insured effect occurred. I remember when I was still working at the bank and waking up in the middle of the night saying, who, who are issuing these things? We just didn't have the data. And what would happen if push comes to shove and they have to pay off? Could they? And then I thought about, ah, oh, these are big insurance companies. I went back to sleep. The notion that they would put themselves at risk in the way that AIG did was to me unfathomable, and I don't think anyone thought of it. Again, risk management unions. A fundamental problem, this and other areas, is the failure of risk management. Either the risk management unit did not understand what was happening, the risk of the extent of the risk involved, or senior management did not pay sufficient attention to the concerns of risk management units, which is certainly possible. By the way, this whole episode is going to give rise to hundreds, thousands of PhD theses, and not a few of them will be directed to risk management units. Then there are the compensation arrangements that took insufficient account of what might happen in coming, coming years. Pay on volume, uh, big, big rate of return, the fact that it was, uh, it was associated with tremendous amount of risk was totally ignored.
or virtually, I shouldn't say totally, it's a little too strong, where were the authorities? Either they didn't recognize the risks being undertaken or they were under pressure from governments to provide light regulation and that outweighed any concerns they might have had. Now, it's not, that it makes it sound that they were foolish. They weren't quite as foolish as all that. Ultimately, the view was that there are financial entities which are not, do not come under the aegis of the safety net and therefore if anything went wrong, it's the sh shareholders that would have to pay. What turned out to be the case in the event was that they were too big or too uh, uh, complex or too interconnected to fail and consequently it ended up being a taxpayer bail, uh, the taxpayers had to bail them out. And therefore, the fact that they were outside the safety net was inappropriate ex post, not necessarily ex ante. Then there was the assumption there would always be liquidity. The classic line was from City uh, Corps. We'll dance, we're going to dance, and we'll get out just before the dancing stops. Well, that assumes there will always be a market when the dancing stops, and that turned out not to be the case. And the, the arrangements for dealing with potential liquidity, liquidity problems were insufficiently robust. In fact, some business, some institutions had a business case that was based on the assumption they'd always be able to access uh, wholesale markets for funding. Northern Rock in the UK is an example of that. Okay, that's a sort of background. Now, what happened? How did the economic crisis start, the uh, financial crisis start to unfold? Housing prices started to fall. Default rates began to rise sharply in the mortgage markets, particularly the subprime. Tremendous uncertainty. Markets can cope with risk, they cannot cope with uncertainty where there's just no notion of what the distribution is. And so people com lost complete faith in each other. There's no tr there was no trust. Markets began to dry up. Investors were unwilling to purchase instruments where value was uh, uh, so uncertain, and you didn't know where the toxic assets were. The liquidity of interbank lending markets, the most liquid markets going, began to dry up. A couple of things going on. One, the banks wanted to hold more liquid assets, and secondly, because they were concerned about each other's solvency, they refused to lend to each other. The spreads between interest rates on the risky and riskless borrowers began to widen. Now, that's the red one, focus on the red line. That's what's called the TED spread, the difference between treasury bills and LIBOR, riskless and risky. And normally over the period, it was something like 25, 30 basis point, it bounced a little bit. And here we have the beginning of the crisis up to about 200 and something. There's the Lehman peak. Actually, when I updated it, I didn't realize it's come all the way back down, or virtually all the way back down. Nonetheless, you can see how unusual, unprecedented that kind of reaction is. 400 basis points for the biggest banks in the world. Now, in addition to the problems related by the crisis, as the economy began to weaken, there was concern, was, uh, start, uh, concern be, uh, widened about the quality of their ordinary business loans, their ordinary uh, consumer loans. Losses started to spread, capital declined. And it, nobody quite knew how much these things were worth because there was no market, so you couldn't even evaluate how badly, thing, how badly things were becoming. Okay, what about the, on the economic side? Before the onset of the economic crisis, the global economy had a relatively long period of fairly steady growth, albeit with certain crises, low inflation, globalization, but there were concerns about the quality of the economic expansion. Of course, that's largely related to the uh, fact that we had imbalances of various sorts, large imbalances, and there was a concern about the ratio of household debt to personal disposable income, which had been going up and up and up. Nonetheless, you can see the trend growth, uh, that's IMF forecasts on the right-hand side, had been edging up, and particularly on the emerging and developing economies, the red line, which had had four or five really, really strong years, I think, again, unprecedented. So we've got a situation where we had low real interest rates going into the crisis. 
stable growth and low inflation, and then there became a reduction in risk spreads well below what would be normally the case as there was a rush to look, there was a search for yield, I think is the way we'd put it. That started off the asset price bubble, which in turn underpinned the economic expansion for quite some period of time as the wealth of households and businesses increased. But the turnaround of the housing crisis and the onset of the financial crisis began to change the economic situation. Over time, as I mentioned, you had the real financial linkages interacting in a way that caused deterioration on both the financial sector and the real economy. And what, the weakness of the financial sector led to weakness of the economy. The weakness in the economy led to further weakness in the financial sector. The authorities wanted to prevent a downward spiral and to break these linkages. So there were multiple challenges they faced. Liquidity problems, solvency problems, a whack, rapidly weakening macro situation, and then how to restructure, re-regulate in the long run. The principal objective of the authorities worldwide was initially to avoid a meltdown or implosion of the financial sector, as this was seen to be one of the major factors in bringing about the Great Depression of the 30s. And as you all know, Ben Bernanke is an expert on the 30s. And secondly, to su provide support to the macro economy. Sorry, the wrong one. So had to deal, first of all, with increased liquidity. Central banks have a traditional lender of last resort function. But this widened dramatically over the period in a way that I found quite astonishing, having worked in the central bank for 30 years. Term loans, loans to non-traditional institutions, purchase of riskier assets, higher risk collateral, foreign exchange swap arrangements, securities lending facilities. And you can see those dot, that's from The Economist. Each of those dashes is a new initiative of the central bank. So it's quite a lot of things going on. What about solvency? Well, the reaction to the financial was on the, sorry, the authorities focused on the financial entities begin, that were believed to be either too big to fail, too complex to fail, or too interconnected to fail. Those that were systemically important. And governments bailed out a number of the institutions. There are four principal approaches taken by governments. Assisted mergers, injections of equity capital preferred shares, purchase or guarantees of the so-called toxic assets, and guarantee of liabilities. Each of them had the effect of preventing loss of deposits. The implication for non-deposit creditors and shareholders differed. There's not very much literature on the advantage or disadvantage of each of these, and governments really have been using what I would call the seat of the pants approach to decision-making in this area with some problems, and I think that's yet another area where there was going to be a lot more work done. Other issues have arisen in the context of the crisis. First of all, proper coordination among various authorities. Division of responsibility for financial stability in the euro area, the ECB versus national central banks. Countries in which banks have grown very large relative to the size of the economy. Iceland and Ireland are the two classic, classic examples where the contingent liability of the government turned out to be far, far larger than what is at all appropriate for a country that size. And then the role of the international organization and the standard setters. So the principal concern on the macro side was to avoid a self-reinforcing downward spiral that would turn what started to be a sharp downturn into a much deeper and more prolonged contraction, perhaps including deflationary pressures. And remember all the, the D word, the famous depression word, which turned out not to happen, partly and largely because of action taken by the authorities. Both monetary and fiscal tools were used, but once we approached the zero interest rate, then monetary the classic uh, tool of the uh, monetary authority, i.e. bring down interest rates, began to fail. So the bank, central banks turned to unconventional mortgage uh, and monetary easing. Now, there are different meanings of that term. There's, Bowder says, uses the term quantitative easing to mean expansion of central bank balance sheet, and qualitative or credit easing to mean a change in the composition of the central bank balance sheet. 
my own view is quantitative doesn't work, credit or qualitative may work. Uh, and I won't go into why, but I'll give you an example from Japan. That blue line is the monetary base in Japan, which went from 100 to 230 over the years 1991 to 2008, went up two and a half, almost two and a half times. M2 went up one and a half times, nominal GDP hardly moved, and bank lending fell. That's not a kind of, now, Japan is a little special because they're having trouble with their financial institutions, but that's not a poster child for monetary, uh, for uh, non-conventional uh, monetary easing of that sort. Qualitative easing has the potential for having considerable effect. It can reduce, reduce risk premiums of various sorts. And it could improve functioning of markets that were in difficulty. These two are cases in the US where there was an announcement that the, sorry, the UK, that there would be an intervention purchased by the Bank of England, purchased by the US. You can see the sharp decline in long-term interest rates. What is less clear is how long that lasts, and that, again, is something that really should be looked at. What about fiscal policy? For much of the period, people thought, uh, the last few years, monetary policy was the favorite tool to deal with cyclical movements. Once you hit the zero, lower bound, that's not going to work anymore. But a lot of people really have questions about the effectiveness of temporary fiscal actions. Research at the IMF in which I was involved concluded certain types of global fiscal measures, along with accommodative monetary policy, can make an important contribution to underpinning the global economy. The three words, global fiscal measures, certain kinds of fiscal measures that have much, more, much larger multipliers, and accommodative monetary policy. So it's taken an important role. And uh, there, the one caveat I would add, though, you have to be very careful. If you have a situation in which there's a perception of fiscal discipline was disappearing, then interest rates are going to start to rise, long-term interest rates, and that will lead to a situation where investment was going to decline, and there can be negative long-run effects on the potential output of the economy. Credibility concern might be addressed by doing things like having fiscal rules, and that's going to be a subject of considerable discussion. And of course, it's very important to avoid protectionist elements of fiscal packages. Exit strategy. Okay, things are beginning to look better. How are we going to get out? Uh, we've had our green shoots, and in fact, in, of course, developing countries are doing even considerably better than the industrialized countries. But, first of all, it's going to be a much more gradual recovery than the usual snapback. And indeed, my own guess is if this was the, what we thought was going to happen two years ago, we have down and it's going to come up parallel, but it's not going to bounce back to the potential growth we had. The growth may be the same, but at a lower level. Uh, much less severe in the, in the emerging economies. Uh, when the time comes, we really do have to exit. The trick is the, uh, well, let me, look, sorry, let me just talk a little bit about monetary stability and financial stability. Financial stability is now the new buzzword. There is an interrelation of monetary and financial stability. Should monetary policy respond to asset price bubbles? As one of my former colleagues wrote, should we lean or clean? Which lean means leaning against an asset price bubble. Clean means cleaning up after the event. I would argue Interest, interest rates, other than interest rates, should be the main mechanism in avoiding excessive credit growth and asset price booms. Interest rates are too blunt an instrument for that purpose. Uh, in the case we do use these other instruments, how do they affect the transmission mechanism? Now, in the fiscal side, as I mentioned, it'll be essential to get to a credible track for the debt to GDP ratio. The main challenge is to get the timing right, and this is not going to be easy. Too premature tightening could slow down incipient recovery. The United States in 1937, Japan in 1997, I believe. If you delay too long, the pressures could build up. We've seen that in the past, and we start having inflation. And you have to rely on forecasts, and forecasts are going to be very difficult now. Uh, 
Financial sector restructuring regulation uh, is going to be very, very important. It's already going on. The G20 work plan group reform efforts under three headings, domestic regulation improvement, cross-border regulation cooperation, and IFI reform and refinancing. I have a different list. First, capital and liquidity. Higher capital and better quality capital, unweighted leverage ratios in addition to weighted leverage ratios, countercyclical leverage of some sort, although there the devil is in the details. The Spaniards have done, Spain has done that, but it's not an easy thing to do. Consolidation of off-balance sheet entities, possible limitations, proprietary trading, liquidity requirements of some form, which the Bank of England's already in the, is, oh sorry, it's the FSA it's introducing. Market practices and arrangements. One of the problems about counterparty risk is if you have all these bilateral arrangements, but if you put, the, if you have clearing and settlement of derivative transactions of various kinds in centralized systems with central counterparties, that deals with that problem. On the other hand, you better make sure that the entity that's doing the clearing and settlement is highly risk-proofed. Possible reorganization of the original distribute model. What's the role of the credit agencies, if any? Should they be regulated? Should we just drop them? Should we allow more to come in? Lots of questions. Compensation arrangements. Intention to incentives at all levels of the organization, the financial sector. Increase focus on compensation arrangements that have medium-term and longer-term consequence. For example, you're getting, I announced your bonus today, but you don't actually get it for five years, and we'll see what happens in the meantime, things like that. Whether this will be done by boards or with government involvement remains to be seen, and boards will likely come under pressure by shareholders and setting up compensation, because the distribution of returns between shareholders and employees is a very interesting question. Supervisory arrangements. I already mentioned if these entities are, are too large to fail or too complex to fail, they've got, and they're going to come under the safety net, they've got to be regulated. Secondly, uh, the Iceland-Ireland case, how do you deal, make sure that your financial sector doesn't get large relative to the economy? Role of influence of risk management units that I've already talked about, but it, uh, I think you'll find regulators spending a lot more time seeing what the linkages are between these risk management units and the most senior levels of management. Increased regulation of mortgage markets, particularly in the United States. Greater, very important, greater transparency, reduced opacity, particularly in the case of derivatives. More and higher quality, that means better paid supervisory staff. Legislation should not be overly rigid, it should provide sufficient safety and stability to avoid repeated financial crisis. And you want to have, okay, one minute, uh, need for better mechanisms for closure, macroprudential supervision, systemically important financial institutions, need for better coordination across the authorities in a given country, across countries. Canada, by the way, is tops in the world on this one. Uh, and much discussion on how to deal with financial institutions with a worldwide footprint. More generally, there's going to be focus of the implications of policy decisions on incentives and potential behavior of financial institutions, financial markets, as well as the authorities. Moral hazard is hiding there. It has to be addressed. And the roles of the interrelationships of the G20, the IFIs, standard-setting bodies, domestic authorities like peer review will have to be worked out. Concluding remarks with one half minute to go. Financial sectors and economies <laughs> worldwide have been under enormous pressure in the last couple of years. Unprecedented actions by the authorities appear to have prevented the situation from becoming worse than it has been. No way of proving that, by the way, because countercycles can't be dealt with very easily. Looking forward, important decisions will have to be made regarding what is needed to restructure the financial system to avoid a recurrence of the problems that's faced and whether some of the innovative techniques introduced by the, economy, by the authorities to combat the crisis should be retained for the longer term. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chuck. I did omit uh, in my introduction uh, to mention that uh, Chuck is now um, 
a professor at Carleton University here in Ottawa and director of a program on monetary and financial economics. And I'm sure that it's a very excellent program after we have heard the wealth of his knowledge.